We read 1 Kings 2, verses 26 through 46, and if you didn't know the story of what came before that, it might be a little bit confusing, so let me back up a little bit. Last week, we studied Solomon's judgment of his brother Adonijah. So Adonijah had tried to take over the kingdom of Israel. Adonijah was not the first son of David to try to take over the kingdom. And we saw mention of one of David's other sons, Absalom, in our text this morning. So what's happening is David has just died. He had decided and God had approved or God had decided and David had approved many years before that Solomon was to be the next king. And in spite of an attempt on the part of David's son Absalom to get rid of him and to take over the kingdom himself, David had remained king. And then as he got to his old age, Adonijah, another one of his sons, decided he was going to take over. And so right at that time, David finally appoints Solomon as king, puts him into his rule in his stead and retires, if you will, at the end of his, at the end of his life. So we have time compressed fairly quickly here um, from there's this rebellion. David says, no, we're going to put Solomon up right now. He, he acts at the, at the request and at the urging of his wife, Solomon's mother, and at the urging of Nathan the prophet. They get Solomon on the throne. Then we read about David's last words to his son Solomon. Then we read about several things that happened, and it's not clear exactly how quickly they happened, but it's these judgments. The judgment on Adonijah, the judgment on uh, Joab, the judgment on Shimei, and the judgment on Abiathar. So we studied last week Solomon's judgment of his brother Adonijah. And this morning, we're going to continue studying Solomon's judgments. Now you remember that Solomon is a very wise, wise king, a wise man whom God had given the gift of wisdom as he began his rule. We haven't seen that in the book of 1 Kings, but we know of that elsewhere. And David, even in his final words to Solomon, in his charge to him, says, but you're wise, I know you'll know how to take care of some of these guys. These guys that I didn't know how to take care of. I didn't know what to do with them. But they need to be judged. So, Solomon makes judgments. And we see his wisdom. We see his shrewdness as he makes these judgments. Judgments of the main men who had been involved in Adonijah's coup attempt as well as the final judgment of Shimei, whom we've already discussed briefly as we read about David dying in his final words to David. And in the judgment of each of these men, we see some sort of an exception. Okay? We see some sort of an exception. 
Now, we're going to have to go back and think about each one of them to see, maybe to notice what the exception is. But it is the mark of wisdom to know how to handle right judgments in the cases that are exceptions. You think about that, it's very easy to program a computer to do one thing all the time. What's hard to program a computer to do is to know what to do about all of the exceptions, right? Maybe you don't know programming, but trust me on that. It's the same with wisdom. It's the same with wisdom. It's easy to make a rule and say, here's what always ought to happen, right? And that's fine. To make that rule, to say, here's what always ought to happen, is just fine. We call it generalizations and we hate it today. But the fact is, wisdom is shown by knowing the truth of the generalizations and knowing the exceptions and what to do about them. And so we see Solomon's wisdom as he judges these men. And we saw it last week, even with Adonijah, his own brother, who had attempted a coup, right? He does not immediately simply execute him out of, out of hand, right? What does he do? He gives him a chance. He says, if you're worthy, you'll live. Not a hair of your head will fall to the ground. You'll be, you'll be completely safe if you simply behave yourself. And did Adonijah behave himself? No. And so Solomon executed him, right? A very sad thing to think about having to do. Well, let's look at Abiathar first. Abiathar was a priest. Now, already we're in dangerous territory. <laughs> Thinking about a king and a priest. It's like a start of a joke, right? A king and a priest walk into a bar. Why is it dangerous territory? It's dangerous territory because you've got two powers. You, 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 you look at the Middle Ages, and what you see over and over again is the question of what the power's balance is going to be between the priests, or those who have religious authority, and the king, or the emperor, those who have civil authority, Right? And you've got a lot of back and forth of them trying to figure out what their interactions should be. And it's not just the Middle Ages. It's still a question today, isn't it? What's the relationship between the king, the, the civil authority, the government, and religion? Or the religious authority, Abiathar, the priest, right? Well... In the book of 1 Kings, we, we get some hints, we get, we get some answers, but we don't get a, a nice written out philosophy of the relationship between church and state, for example. <laughs> Might have been nice. Just some simple, straightforward rules. Here is how it ought to always be. But in point of fact, it also is a place that is filled with exceptions that require much wisdom. And so here we have 
Solomon. And what does he do? He dismisses Abiathar from being a priest before the Lord at the altar. He dismisses him. Does Solomon have that authority? Seems a bit weird, right? Can Solomon actually do that? Well, it's funny. Practically speaking, absolutely. Because he banishes him from the city. And certainly that's within his power to do as king, right? And if you're the priest supposed to serve before the altar of the Lord and you can't come into the city anymore and you can't get to the tabernacle and you can't get, therefore, to the altar, that's pretty much being dismissed, isn't it? So regardless of the weirdness that we're, that we're dealing with here at the, of the interplay between civil and ecclesiastical authority, which it is, let's acknowledge, a little bit weird. And it's not just weird with Solomon, but you remember that David was the one who chose and appointed people who would serve in these positions also. Okay, so Solomon is not just doing something entirely new here to dismiss Abiathar because David had appointed Abiathar in the first place. But what does, what does Solomon do that shows us the exception? Well, what had Abiathar done? Abiathar had committed sedition, do any of you kids know what sedition is? If someone is being seditious, what are they doing? Some of you have had seditious kids in your classes with you. Seditious. Anybody want to guess at that? Sedition is when somebody tries to get you to rebel against authority. Okay, so in the context of the king, sedition means that you are attempting to lead people to rebel against the king. And this can happen with any authority, though. It can happen with children in the home and their parents, that one child can be seditious, can happen in a classroom, like I said, that one or two kids can lead the classroom into rebellion. And the worst kind of sedition is the sneaky kind of sedition that doesn't blatantly say, oh no, we don't have to listen to them, but just kind of gradually leads everybody to disobeying gradually, slowly leads everybody to doing what they know they're not supposed to be doing. Well, Abiathar had been seditious towards David and towards the rightful heir of David's throne, Solomon. How had he been seditious? He had been seditious by lending his 
voice, lending his weight, lending his moral authority, of which, let's be honest, there were few people in the city and in the kingdom that had more moral authority and more moral suasion than Abiathar. Not just because he was a priest before the Lord and served in the, in the tabernacle and sacrificed and served before the altar. That is enough moral authority in and of itself to have a lot of people willing to follow you. Right? But why did he have even more moral authority than that? It's because he had been with David through all of David's struggles, and the people knew that. They loved David, they loved the men who were faithful to David, they loved Abiathar. And so when Abiathar tries to get Adonijah into the position of king against the will of David, against the will of God, against the promise and anointing of Solomon, he is lending a lot to Adonijah's cause. You understand? He had not just committed sedition, trying to get people to rebel, but he had also committed treason. Treason and sedition often go together in our minds and it's hard to distinguish between them. Okay, but if sedition is inciting rebellion, then treason is trying to overthrow the rightful authority. So, anybody in a classroom can be seditious by trying to convince everybody else to not obey, right? But if you lock the door of the classroom and sit in the teacher's desk and say, I'm teaching today, that's treason. (laughs) Or if you simply say, hey, we're going to put so-and-so in as teacher today. We're taking over here. That's treason. It doesn't have to be you trying to take the position yourself, but when you try to overthrow the person and put somebody else in the position, that's treason. Okay? Now, normally today, we don't talk about sedition and treason apart from the civil government, and we don't talk about it ever, basically, because we don't even have uh, a king anymore. And so, you know, sedition and treason against Congress, it's like, well, I mean, we vote against them all the time, right? How hard, it's, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to be treasonous today, but it's not hard. It is actually still possible to be treasonous, and it's still possible to commit sedition. And it's not only possible for these sins against God's rightful authority to happen in the context of the top authority in a land. And that's why I bring up a classroom or your parents. Because it is the exact same sin against authority to commit these same kinds of wrongs against lesser authorities. You understand what I'm saying? 
It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not like it's okay to be constantly trying to rile people up against your teacher, but then the moment that there's a king or the moment it's the president, now all of a sudden it's not okay to rile people up against them. Like all the way up the ladder. Oh yeah, you can do that against your teacher, you can do that against your principal, you can do that against your parents, you can do that against the governor, you can do that against the congressmen, the senators, the Supreme Court justices, but not the president. That's sedition. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> the sin is inciting rebellion. That's the sin. Whatever you call it, when we incite rebellion, when we try to lead others away from respect and submission to authority, that is the sin that Abiathar had given himself to. But he had served King Solomon's father David faithfully. His whole life for many years. And so Solomon makes a judgment. And Solomon says, you deserve to die. Sedition and rebellion against the top authority in the land is a capital offense. And it's still a capital offense in the United States. Meaning you can be executed for it. This is always a capital offense. Trying to overthrow the government is a capital offense. It will get you killed unless you succeed. Right? And it happens in various governments and countries around the world. It happened a few years ago in Ethiopia. I keep up with Ethiopia because two of my sons are from Ethiopia. And you know what happened? The coup attempt failed, and then people got executed. Capital offense. And so Solomon makes a judgment. Here we've got sedition, treason, it's a capital offense. The right judgment is death. However, here's the exception. However, there is an extenuating circumstance. kind of the opposite of the way our prison system works today where you say, you know, hey, you've been sentenced to 40 years. You've only been in for five, but you've been behaving so good, we're going to let you out tomorrow. Right? The extenuating circumstances, like you were behaving yourself after you were judged. This is different. This is the extenuating circumstances. Your behavior prior to this one major failing that deserves death, granted, has been so good, I'm not going to have you executed. Now the contrast here is not just between how good he had been and then how bad he was at the end. Okay? The contrast here, you have to know a little bit more History. And this goes earlier than 1 Kings, as many of these stories do. 
what else do we know about Abiathar? We know that the king before David, not David's father, not related to David, Saul, Saul had murdered Abiathar's father and the rest of his family and all of the rest of the priests that were part of his family and all of the rest of a city. Why? Why does, why does Saul execute women and children? Because one priest helped David. One priest helped David, and Saul came unglued. And he murdered everybody. And Abiathar was the only one who escaped. And Abiathar runs and tells David what happened, and David blames himself for the death of Abiathar's family. He says, I shouldn't have gotten help there. I, I saw that guy, that traitor there, Doeg, the Edomite. I knew he would tell Saul. And then he says, stay with me, I'll take care of you. The same men who are trying to kill you are trying to kill me. We'll stand or we'll fall together, but I'll, I'll give you my protection while I live. And Abiathar stayed with David from then on and was faithful to him. He was faithful to him through Absalom's rebellion. He was faithful to him all the way up until we read about Adonijah. And so Solomon judges his crimes worthy of death, but given the history, he spares him and exiles him to his property at Anathoth instead. He's of little danger to the king there, and also King David knows his character and expects him to not be a problem from then on. Or did I say David? Solomon. Solomon, king, knows his character. Now, there's a little bit more that we know about Abiathar that's important. In verse 27, it said, that this happened in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Now, who was Eli? Again, we've got to go back. We've got to learn more. We're, we're studying 1 Kings, but if you go read the history, uh, really, Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel, before you come to 1 Kings, and if you can remember everybody's names, so probably read it five or ten times if you're me. Uh, then you'll have a lot better understanding of what's going on when we get to First Kings. Okay, but uh, there's little hints like this verse. 
that give you a clue to go back and find out who was Eli? Where was Shiloh? What's this about? Right? Eli was another priest. A priest who had sons who were wicked and he did not discipline them. And so they were sleeping with the girls that served in the tabernacle, like the church. They were stealing from the people. They were even stealing the sacrifice from God. And Eli didn't do anything about it. And God promised Eli that judgment was going to come upon his house because of this. So you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2. So it's a while back in that history. It says, verse 30 and 31, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, but now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then a few verses later, but I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. This is one of many, many places in the Old Testament where we read of God's promise that he was going to send a Savior. We have these contrasts set out for us. The wickedness of Eli and his sons who are going to be set aside as priests and are ultimately going to be replaced by Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who will be perfectly holy, who will be a priest before God forever. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise that there will be an enduring house. And it's similar to the promise that the, that the Lord made to David. That from David's house would arise a king. And he talks about a, a great and glorious king. The same way he talks about this, this great and glorious priest that will arise. He also says there's also going to be this great and glorious king. And, and elsewhere we read about him saying that there's going to be this this great and glorious prophet that will arise. And you know what? Jesus Christ is the prophet, the priest, and the king that the Old Testament speaks of. And his house is enduring. It lasts forever. And we are his house, his people, whom he is building up into a house. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the sins of the people will not go unatoned for. 
the great high priest has paid the penalty for the sins of the people. We're going to see these kinds of prophecies a number of places as we're going through 1 Kings brought in. This one actually in 1 Samuel, right, that I just read from. But we're going to see this theme of the word of the Lord being fulfilled. So he had given this word of prophecy to Eli through Samuel. And Eli had bowed his head and said, that's right. The Lord's judgment is good. The Lord do what is good in his sight. What a sad thing to say. Yes, my sins are so wicked that my family shouldn't be serving before the altar anymore. God fulfills the beginning of that by giving the sign that he said his, his very own two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die and that, the, and that the ark would be taken. And on Eli's last day of life, he saw that happen and then he died. But that was only a sign of the fulfillment of all of God's words. And here we see the completion of it. Abiathar is one of the descendants of Eli. And he is removed from his office, no longer to serve before the Lord. Sent to live out in the country. Banished from the city. Is that what Solomon's goal was? To fulfill God's promise made to Eli? Doesn't say that. Doesn't give any hint of that. Doesn't give any indication that that's what Solomon's goal was. But was it God's goal? Yeah. And we're going to see that happen all through the book of 1 Kings. There will be these little examples, or big examples, of God's word being fulfilled. Sometimes in spite of the intentions of the people who are fulfilling it. Sometimes clearly that is their goal to fulfill what God had said. And other times like this where there's no indication one way or another whether Solomon even knew what had been said to Eli. But God fulfills his word. And so Solomon judges Abiathar. And he's wise. He understands what the exception is. He's merciful. He does exactly the opposite of Saul. Demonstrating his great wisdom compared to Saul's great foolishness. And yet at the same time, he's accomplishing God's terrible judgment on the house by putting him out of, and he's giving him, what he deserves by removing him from the office of priest serving before the Lord. And that is a fearful thing. And it ought to cause us to be afraid. 
Because God is a wise judge. And yes, he's merciful. And yes, he understands exceptions. But he also demands that we obey him. We're going to see that with Shimei. But first, Joab. Joab, who was Joab? Joab was a violent man, the leader, the commander of the army under King David. He'd also gone through all of David's sorrows and sufferings with him. And so you might expect the same exception to be made for Joab, right? He also was faithful through the coup attempt of Absalom. And finally here, only at the very end, does he turn against David and against Solomon. But is that all that Joab did? No. Speaking of Absalom, David had given explicit commands that his son Absalom was not to be killed. Joab killed him. Joab killed him. Against David's commands. And you can think about the wisdom or lack thereof of David's command to spare Solomon. And think what you will about that. The command of David was, as king, he is not to be killed. Spare him for my sake. Does Absalom care about David? Well, yeah. Maybe cares about him enough to disobey him. But he disobeys. And he disobeys in a brutal way. Putting three spears through Absalom. While he's hanging helpless by his hair because he's so proud of how he looks. And let that be a little lesson to you who like the way you look. But moving right along, what else did Joab do? Absalom isn't even brought up at this time. The real crime of Joab is the assassination of two men. The commander of the Israelite army and the commander of the armies of Judah. Two different events. One of them seeming to be purely for Joab to defend his own position as commander. Take out the only guy who has a chance of doing it as good a job as I can at at being the commander of the armies. And so David leaves him in the position of commander. Speaking of wisdom or lack thereof, Joab knows when Adonijah has been executed that he can expect nothing less for himself. And he's right. But what does he do? He flees to the altar in a last-ditch attempt to save his life. Now, if you think about what we said about how much moral authority Abiathar had because he served before the Lord at the altar, Joab is using that same moral authority to try to save his own life. 
fleeing and grabbing on to the horns of the altar where the sacrifices to the Lord were made. It is a holy place. Sacrifices are made there, yes, but never, ever would you dare to commit sin in the very presence of the Lord as set apart by the holy place of the tabernacle and in particular his altar. That's what was so wicked about what the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas had done. That they would be sinning in the very presence of the Lord, in the very process of sacrifices being made. To to shed a man's blood there is extreme. It's a holy place, not to be desecrated. And this is not something that's unique only to the temple or the tabernacle or the altar of Jehovah. But it's something that you see throughout history that men would flee into the temples. Temples of Zeus or Diana or any of the temple that happened to be around, flee there in order to save their life. To plead the holiness of God to save themselves. Sometimes it works. The stories that we mostly hear, though, are the ones where people go ahead and execute them even though they're there. And that's what we have here. But it's such a terrible crime all on its own to go into the house of the Lord for the purpose of violence. That Benaiah is a little bit hesitant after that's where Joab ends up. And so what does he do? He goes back to Solomon and says, so I was going to kill him. Right? You said kill him, so I was going to kill him. But before I got there, he made it to the tabernacle, and now he's in the tabernacle, he's at the ark, and he won't come out. What does Solomon say? Solomon knows God's command. He knows the exceptions. Listen to this. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Is that what Joab had done? Yeah. Joab was a murderer. What did God say? He shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. If, however, a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Exodus 21, 12 through 14. To not execute Joab was a failure on the part of David. And Solomon does not want unavenged blood guilt to rest on him and on his family or on the name of his father David. And so what does he do? He does what needed to be done long ago and he executes Joab. Favoritism is disastrous in the place of justice, isn't it? 
And Joab was family to David and Solomon. Favoritism to family is understandable, isn't it? And so wicked. So wicked. Favoritism to a family member. It poisons the judgments of the king. And it destroys the authority of the king in the eyes of the people. And so Solomon establishes the kingdom by establishing justice as the top goal that he will seek regardless. Now finally, Shimei. Shimei is in the opposite position. Shimei had cursed David in the past, had particularly been a thorn in his side during Absalom's coup attempt. These other men had been faithful during Absalom's coup attempt. Shimei had been unfaithful at that time, but was faithful during Adonijah's coup attempt. That's a little bit backwards, isn't it? So David, even though Shimei did deserve death way back when Absalom had rebelled, David had spared his life and said, you will not die, but he had never given him a judgment. David seems to have been caught. I want him dead. That's what he deserves. But I told him I wouldn't. So I don't know what to do. So he leaves him alive. Never does anything. But as he's dying, he says to Solomon, Take care of Shimei. I never figured out what to do with him, but you know what to do with him. Solomon finally judges him by giving him what seems to be an arbitrary command. Stay in the city. Stay in the city. It's interesting that it's exactly the opposite of the command that he had given to Abiathar. Stay out of the city. Shimei, you must stay in the city. Is that to keep them apart from each other? Maybe. Who knows? You know how some teachers do that, right? You stay over here, you sit over there. You've got assigned seats. Is that, it? Is that an arbitrary execution of the teacher's authority to do that? No, it's typically wisdom, isn't it? Are teachers allowed to just do that? You have to sit here and you have to sit there. I thought we were allowed to sit anywhere we want. You are, except you not, and you not. You have to sit here, and you have to sit here. Does it rub you the wrong way for the king to be able to just say, you have to live in the city, and you have to live out of the city? You can't come in the city, and you have to, you can't leave the city? I don't think it rubs us nearly the wrong way as... as it would if we actually had similar kinds of things in mind for today. But we don't even have a king today, so it's like, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. King did whatever he wanted. And that's 
largely true. The king had ultimate authority, didn't he? He could just give commands. Stay in the city, Shimei. The nature of authority, the authority of Solomon, the king, is limited by the laws of God. But it is not inherently limited by our understanding of how far it can extend today. In other words, we think that we understand authority and that it, it, it stops at exactly this point. But Solomon demonstrates here that the civil magistrate has the authority to do really bizarre things apart from there being reigning in of that authority. It just so happens that thankfully the founders of our nation understood the reality of that being a dangerous thing and that a lot of people, in fact everyone, isn't quite so wise as Solomon. (laughs) And so it might be better to put some limits on that authority. But what I want you to realize is that those limits are put in place by law, not by the nature of the authority itself. They're not natural limits. They're legal limits. And so when we think of the limits of authority, oftentimes we're not thinking of the natural limits of authority, which when you're talking about the king, when you're talking about the civil magistrate, the natural limits are very, very far out there. The legal limits, thankfully, are much closer. Okay, but why do I say thankfully? Because we hate the thought of somebody being able to tell us what to do. That's the main reason. And also because it's wiser to put limits on it. But let's be honest. The main reason is because we don't like people telling us what to do. Government, in the person of the king, was rightly understood at that time to essentially have limitless authority unless they were transgressing God's law. And so Solomon just says, you have to stay out of the city, you have to stay in the city. And Solomon seems to have known this command would be a burden. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been fulfilling his father David's final words and commands to him. Nevertheless, Shimei's life is entirely in his own hands. He can abide by the command, but if he doesn't, then he has disobeyed an explicit direct command from the king to him, and his life is forfeit. And that's what happens. Solomon warns him, if he doesn't, he will die. He's got to stay in the city. And he does. It says he does for a long time. 
But then he decides that he can just make an exception for himself. And that's the end of him. And this is the exception for Shimei. When we make exceptions for ourselves, we're not in the position to make exceptions, are we? When we make exceptions for ourselves, rather than waiting for the judge to make exceptions for us, do you think the judge who has the right to judge and make exceptions looks with kindness and favor? Not often. Not often. God is the one who makes the judgments. And he is the one who said to Eli, you know, I said that there was going to be somebody from your family serving me, but you've been so bad I've decided to make an exception to my word. He's also the one who says, Be ye holy as I am holy. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. And the people of Judah and Israel say, oh, yeah, 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 we're worshiping you. We're just going to make a little exception here. And God says, yeah, remember that land I told you you could have? Yeah, well, decided to make an exception. Because you made an exception to worshiping me. And so now the land isn't yours anymore. This is a God who makes judgments. How often do you make exceptions for yourself? For your own sin? And simply expect God to understand why it was important enough for you to disobey him. I had to go get my servant. Don't be so unreasonable, Solomon. I wasn't doing anything bad. I just needed to go get my servant. God's commands to us are not arbitrary. Solomon's command was not arbitrary. It may seem arbitrary. And some of God's commands that we don't understand may seem arbitrary to us as well. God's commands are not meant to trap us. Like Solomon's command seems to have been meant to trap Shimei. God's commands are for our good. Nevertheless, we can sometimes feel trapped by them. And so, what do you do when you feel trapped? When you feel like God's command is just burdensome? When you feel like you know what the right thing to do is, but it's just going to be too hard to live without your servant? 
you feel justified. Like, I've been doing good. I mean, I've been, I haven't crossed the Brook Kidron for like six years. I mean, I think I've demonstrated a, a good track record here. Now I can cross it, right? I, I haven't been... I haven't been involved in a coup attempt for like 30 years. This is how we think of ourselves, right? You realize how ridiculous it sounds when you, when you think of Shimei, but you think of your own sin, you're like, yeah, I mean, I haven't sinned this last week in this way, so like, now I, now I get to write off this rule for a day, right? That's just, that's just like how it works, right? Now I get an exception. God's commands are given to us in order that we might live. And that's really what Solomon's command to Shimei was. Here it is. Don't go out of the city. Don't cross the brook. And you will live. And God's commands to us are, obey me and live. Don't make exceptions for yourself. Obey him and live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know how easy it is for us to make exceptions. To to seek to justify ourselves. To feel that we have the ability to say, I have done good, therefore I can get away with this. But Father, you see all things. You see into our hearts. You know our motives. You know our desires. Help us to see you and your law and our hearts more clearly that we might seek your face. And Father, we thank you most of all for the exception that you have said. Though our sins deserve your wrath and punishment that you have poured out that wrath and punishment already on your son in our place. And so we may live. We praise and glorify you because of this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.